This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 776, Creator Commentary with Ron Friends. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 776. It's a, another creator commentary with Ron Friends, good friend of the show. Uh, in this episode, we take a look at Spider-Man Hobgoblin Lives, number one to three, as well as Amazing Spider-Man 96, which was the uh, the annual from that year. And we also talk about Amazing Spider-Man 280 and 281, which are uh, two of the earlier comic books I remember buying uh, with my own money at a convenience store. Uh, not the original comics, mind you, the Marvel Tales reprints that came out about, I think, eight or nine years later uh anyways uh ron is always a a, a great guest of the show uh, he's one of the most um forthcoming people in terms of just really laying out process and really kind of giving you a, a sneak peek at kind of what was what was under the hood so to speak and he's uh, always very giving of his time and it's always uh, a great pleasure to have him on for these uh, creator commentaries i have such a, a good time uh you know just being able to talk with him about some of this, uh, some of his work that I've really loved uh, over the years. So uh, it's always a great pleasure to have him on the show. You can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, also listen to us on Stitcher. In terms of upcoming episodes, uh, the next episode, 770, is that right? 778 will be our conversation with Al Ewing. It was actually originally going to be this episode, just but due to uh, some editing issues, uh, it's going to be a little bit delayed. So I, I thought I would uh, move Ron up. And then uh, we're going to have upcoming episodes just working on firming up the timing so we're going to have uh, hopefully barry kitson on the show as well as uh letterer uh dave lenfear so uh that's some good stuff so that's uh, the next what three episodes which is that'll bring us another month and a half so we're getting closer and closer to episode 800 i really got to figure out what to do to celebrate such a big milestone so hopefully something good will uh end up being in the works for 800 anyways thanks uh for joining us for this episode and let's jump right into the conversation with ron friends okay Ron, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? Adam, it's wonderful to be with you. I am great and uh, looking forward to another conversation with you. I always enjoy our time together. Well, I'm very blessed and, and I'm very fortunate that you feel that way. And I've had so much fun being able to do deep dives with you. And so this time we're actually doing a little bit more Spider-Man centric since last time we were focusing uh, obviously on Anex, which was uh, not really Spider centric at all. Um, I... I threw some issues at you that I was curious to talk about, and then I was uh, I was embarrassed, and I will publicly admit it that I didn't realize that the, one of the ones I'd given you you hadn't even done. So I apologize in advance because um, the three issues that first stuck out at me, or that I was like, oh man, maybe I should talk about with these with Ron, was Amazing Spider Man two seventy nine to two eighty one. Now that has special significance to me as a reader because um, many years after they were published, they were actually reprinted as part of Marvel Tales, and then in the, I guess in the summer of ninety three or ninety four, I was picking those up and. And so I got to experience them, and this is such a weird tonal shift. In the same summer, I was picking up Amazing Spider-Man issues during the Maximum uh, clone, uh, sorry, Maximum Carnage storyline, and at the same time reading stuff from you and Tom's kind of tenure. And you could not have two very different kind of um, you know approaches to Spider-Man. And I definitely loved your you know you guys, and I didn't realize I was reading something that was that much older at that point. Not to make you feel old, um, and so I. Why? 
you, you keep tripping over your tongue that way, Adam. Don't worry about I know. it. I understand exactly what you're talking about. It's very similar to the experience I had growing up. I loved Marvel Tales and Marvel's Greatest Comics and everything because it, you know, I, it was a wonderful learning experience for me. It was a nice, cheap way to read the original stories. So, yeah, while I was reading, you know, uh, Len Wein, Marv Wolfman, Ross Andrew, Keith Pollard. I was also reading Ditko and Ramita and all that in the in Marvel Tales, you know. So, and, and yeah, it, it can be a, a kind of a tonal shift, as you say. But by the same token, you know, it's it's all under the umbrella. It's all it's all Spider Man. So mm-hmm. uh, that's that's very fascinating. Yeah, and those issues. The, the first one, 279, yes, was by Leonardi, and I don't, at this point, I don't really remember the ins and outs of of why. It, it was late enough in the run that James Owsley might have been our editor, and one of the things he did when he came in as editor, uh, he, he, he slotted a lot of fill-ins. Um, I don't know whether it was... Uh, it might have had something to do with the fact that he just wasn't really crazy about my work. I'm not absolutely sure about that, but uh, he did slot uh, a lot of fill-ins, either fill-ins that were already done and he put them in, or he commissioned fill-ins. So I'm not quite sure how it all it all timed out for that particular issue. I know it was during a time where there were in Peter Parker and in Amazing Spider-Man wasn't in the stories because he was trapped in a cave-in in West Virginia or something like that in, uh, <laughs> in, in Web of Spider-Man yep. so that uh, he was absent from the, from the storylines. So it might have been that I even chose to take that issue off to get a jump on the next one, although I find that hard to believe because it featured Silver Sable and she was one of our characters, so I don't think I would have willingly given up an opportunity to draw Silver Sable again. So... Who knows why, but yes, that issue was done by Rick Leonardi. The art was by Rick Leonardi and Vinnie Coletta. And uh, even the cover, which I'm credited for on Marvel.com, I didn't do that cover. Uh, that cover is credited to myself and Brett Breeding, and uh, it's not. I, I think it could be. It could be like Tom Morgan and Joe Rubenstein, or or somebody along those lines. Somebody that was in the office more. I'm not positive. I don't really know for sure. Uh, at some point. Curiosity may may uh, move me to ask Tom Morgan on Facebook if maybe he did that cover. I don't know, but uh, yeah, the internet is not always right. Isn't that <laughs> isn't that disappointing? <laughs> I, it, you know, I, it, I I know the internet is often not right. I just thought you know usually credits seem a little bit more. Uh, I don't know. I I feel like usually you can trust those types of things, but obviously I was I was proven uh, painfully wrong. Um, but you, you bring up a good point. Like it is a Silver Sable story, and that's probably why in my mind I was like, well, it has to be wrong. Well, that's very possible. Uh, you know, I mean, certainly Leonardi did a wonderful job, and you know, even at the time I was hired on Spider Man, Leonardi had done a couple of fill-ins. Well, he did uh, the two at the very beginning of my run with Tom DeFalco uh, in the black costume and uh, did a terrific job on them and you know, would have deserved the regular gig every bit as much as, as I did if one can say I actually deserved it, which I never really looked at it that way. <laughs> but yeah, he does terrific Spider-Man work and, and he did a nice job with Silver Sable. So I, you know, he, what he did that I really liked was he didn't just draw her in one costume. He 
at her wearing silver clothing, which was the whole point. You know, she was supposed to be very Emma Peel and not just have one singular costume like a superhero, but just that everything she did wear and all her gear and all that kind of stuff was just always signature silver. And he did a very good job of that. So I, I remember enjoying the issue, you know. Mm-hmm. One thing that strikes me is that, I mean, again, when I would have read these, I would have been, I think, nine or ten, I don't know. And um, I, I always wonder, like, you know, about kids, if comic books are too complicated at times or if they need to. And then I realized that, like, I was reading this, as I said, alongside Maximum Carnage, and I don't think I was ever confused. And I don't think I was ever like, well, well, hold on, this doesn't make any sense. I think I just went along for the ride. And I think people are, I think it's the older people who are more like, oh, this is going to be confusing. Whereas when you're a kid, it doesn't matter. It's just exciting. It's something new and exciting. And you just kind of go along with it. And then later on, you go, oh, did that actually make sense to me? Well, it, it never will be as confusing as it is now. <laughs> Back then, it was nowhere near as confusing as it would be now. Uh, but you're right. I mean, I started reading Marvel Comics when I was six or seven. And part of the fun was coming in in the middle of the movie. You know, I remember, I remember an early issue of the Avengers that I traded with a neighborhood kid that you know, without a cover and all this kind of stuff, but it was fantastic Salvacema artwork. And in the course of it, Goliath is one of the Avengers, and at one point, Roy Thomas has him saying, uh, his name used to be Hawkeye, but no, it's Goliath, and he grows and becomes Goliath, and then he gets knocked down by the growing man, and Yellow Jacket runs over to him, and he goes, I guess I'll, ne- I've, I'll never be able to fill your shoes, Hank, and, and Yellow Jacket says to him, I've never been prouder of the man who succeeded me as Giant Man, so I'm sitting there going, oh, okay, so Yellow Jacket used to be Giant Man, <laughs> and Goliath used to be Hawkeye, cool, okay, you know, I mean, they were scripting for the newsstand at that point, they were scripting for every issue being somebody's first issue, and thus... It was it was much easier to uh, to jump on board and you know grab a hold and have fun mm-hmm. you know and I was one of the kids that was doing that so yeah it, it uh, never seemed to be overwhelmingly complicated for me either so I you know I, I kids can be sponges when it comes to that kind of thing too you know absolutely my niece at one point was into Pokemon cards and she could have given you chapter and verse on Pokemon and uh, you know. I, I was never into that kind of stuff, you know, when I was a kid. It was, <laughs> it was all comics for me. For sure. So I'm curious. So if we start, so throw 279 aside. Uh, we're saying it's got great artwork by Leonardo, but let's, for the moment, put it aside. I'm curious with 280. So you guys introduce, you and the legendary Tom DeFacco, uh, introduce the Sinister Syndicate, which, again, I discovered this early without realizing that it was never really a thing after this. Like, it was very seldom ever used. But I always loved the the combination of uh, characters you guys used. But what I'm curious about is that um, your credit is just doing layouts here. I'm curious how yes. detailed they were, and then you had Brett doing pencils and inks. I'm just curious on both how that of, worked out. Both of those issues, actually. Uh, both of the issues in Coney Island. Uh, let me think what's... I'm pretty sure. Yeah, both. I know I did the... I know the first one... And I'm pretty sure the second one as well. I think I you're right. It, it, yeah, I think it, it it also has you doing just layouts. I only the did layouts. thumbnails on I actually just did thumbnail layouts. I didn't even do full-size page layouts. Oh, really? Uh, I did, you know, like like thumbnail layouts that would have been like four to, you know, four pages to an eight and a half by 11 sheet. And Brett actually blew them up and uh, put them up on the boards. Uh, and... 
what I remember about it is that one of the issues he was actually working on while he was crashing here, he was in for a visit. Oh, really? And was, and was working on the pages while he was here at my apartment. And I, because I remember at one point, I was giving him a hard time because he was going, well, what did you mean when you were doing this face here? And I said, Brett, you're the penciler now, man. You know, <laughs> anchors, you know, anchors can get a little, uh, can get a little uppity sometimes. I'm joking, of course, but you know, anchors have this thing that they're the final say and they are. And, and if, if there's a, uh, an opinion about how something should be handled, they have the final say, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, you feel, sometimes you feel as a penciler with certain anchors, not with Brett, but with certain anchors, you feel like, you know, you can be overruled at times uh, because they're working in the indelible ink, you know, that <laughs> kind of thing. And uh, so when he was sitting, I remember at one point he was sitting and, and was working on a page, and I believe it was Mary Jane. He said, you know, it was a shot of Mary Jane, and he said something like, you know, well, how, how would you do this? And I'm going, I don't have to worry about it, Brett. I, my, job, uh, my job is done. Now you, you know, welcome to being a penciler, you know, that kind of thing. Kind of busting his chops about it. But um, he did a terrific job on both of them. Uh, he did a, we did one other job like that. On these, these two jobs, he, he did the penciling and did the inking. We did one other job like that where uh, it was like the last, I think the last regular Spider-Man my name was on. I did thumbnails, Brett penciled it, and Joe Rubenstein inked it. So, oh. you know, Brett was getting some real penciling experience at that time and doing a terrific job with it. I mean, for the most part, I you know, I don't think most people noticed much of a difference, really, you know. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was a different experience. It was a little different experience, but um, you know there there was a lot of story to tell in those things with uh, the Sinister Syndicate and Spider Man and uh, Silver Sable all fighting at Coney Island and and I think uh, in the course of it, what Sandman switches sides or something. And, yeah, uh, there's there's a ton of content in those two issues, like yeah. the amount the, me- the the metric ton of stuff that's happening. But it's all exciting. Like I mean, and this is I mean, it's definitely something that's in sh- in sh- um, pretty integral to Spider Man is that like some of the most exciting stuff isn't even about Peter at all. Like you have Betty Brant and her like marriage is falling apart, and like Ned Leeds is like taking off because he knows that you know she had an affair with with Flash. Like that's engrossing stuff and. Again, it has nothing to do with the superheroics at all, but it's, there's just so much of that in here, and it's so exciting. Well, DeFalco is, is as we've talked about before, is a, a structure writer, uh, and he he can get more content into a comic uh, clearly and legibly uh, than anybody other than any other writer I can think of uh, off the top of my head. Uh, you know, maybe Roger Stern is in there. You know, Dave Michelinie, uh, uh, Mark DeMattis, you know, those guys, they just really know the craft. And Tom's stories, I, I always knew that I was in for a lot of fun penciling a Tom DeFalco story because when I would read the plots, I would feel like, oh, there's no way I'm going to fit this into 22 pages. <laughs> And and when I had that feeling, that's when I knew this is going to be fun, <laughs> you know, because some everybody was getting their money's worth, you know. I was I was I was 
I, I was working for my dollar, and and you knew that the reader was going to get their money's worth as well. So yeah, there there was a lot of content in those stories. One of the things I loved about it too is my favorite way to start a story is that he starts the story in the middle. It's a, it's a wonderfully uh, uh, action-packed splash page of Spider-Man and Silver Sable dodging. And we do a couple of pages setting up the fight at Coney Island, and then we flash back to how they got there, you know, mm. that kind of thing. And that's always been one of my favorite structures because you always want to hook the reader up front and, uh, and grab them by the throat and drag them into the pages. And that, that's one of the best ways to do it, you know. Absolutely. Well, I mean, and it's kind of a twofold thing because, I mean, it's not even like there was a cliffhanger last issue and you're jumping in the, like, you're in the middle of the cliffhanger. Like, it is just from the middle of this issue. Yep. The last issue had nothing, no setup to this. And again, it's, it really grabs you. Um, one thing I, I had a question about, just kind of flipping through it, was so interesting all the different uh, configurations of the panels. Um, and obviously, I guess that would have come from your thumbnails as well. I'm just curious how you, how you structure it that way. Like, it's so interesting to look at, like, you have some some pages where you have more typical nine-panel grid, and then others where, you know, you're varying which one's kind of inset, which one's kind of uh, has a border around it, which one doesn't. Um, you know, how do you kind of structure something like that? Well, it, it basically, you, you have to do that when there's that kind of content. I mean, I don't think any story these days has that amount of content where you even have to make decisions like that as much. Uh, but it, it really just comes down to, to clarity. The, my, my watchword and my North Star is always clarity for the reader. Um, so the, all those decisions are made uh, with that in mind. And, uh, you know, it, it's, as I said, it's not rocket science. What we do is not rocket science. They, you know, you're, you're being paid to tell the story visually as clearly as possible. You know, ideally, you should be able to show anybody off the street, not not a veteran comic reader, not a fellow illustrator, just anybody off the street should be able to look at the artwork without any captions or dialogue or anything and basically tell you what's going on. And when I was still working from, from home, uh, by the time I was doing Spider-Man, that was not the case. But when I was still working from home for a few years, I would use my sainted mother for that duty. You know, I would I would show a batch of pages to her, and she might not know who the characters are, but she would know that you know, oh, this guy's angry with what this guy said, and he just ran out. He just walked out the door and slammed the door. So, oh boy, you know, and, and she would be able to tell me generally what was going on and what the general attitude of the characters were, and that's that's my job. You know, if I, if I'm not doing that, then I'm not doing my job. So all those decisions are made. Uh, under the auspice of uh, clarity in storytelling for the reader, so. mm-hmm. with um, with a storyline like this, and, and again, you have a new configuration of villains. Um, did you and, and Tom talk about you know this new team, or like how? I'm just curious how you guys even chose these guys to be on a new team as a, and a new name instead of using a Sinister Six again. Now you're using yeah, a Sinister well, Syndicate. Well, Tom is using a, an existing name or an existing concept is, is virtually anathema to, to Tom DeFalco. He always wants to freshen it up. Even if it's basically, you know, even if it's six guys, six bad guys teamed up, he, he, he would never consider using Sinister Six because that is something different. That is something else. And uh, so, yeah, he came up with the, the name Sinister Syndicate. The, the choice of the characters, 
I'm not not quite sure. I will tell you what I do remember very clearly is that the editor, uh, Jim Housley, insisted on a redesign of the Rhino. And he was pushing for something Transformer-like. Uh, you know, I'm assuming he was actually way ahead of his time, and he was thinking about something uh, akin to what appeared at the end of Amazing Spider-Man 2, mm. you know? Yeah. Uh, he wanted something more mechanical, and I hated that idea because I was a big fan of the original design, and I didn't think it needed to be upgraded at all. Uh, so I, you know, the one thing that I... What I, that I've noticed that I remembered about rhinos is that is they have those plates under the skin that look kind of cool when you see them at the zoo. And I said, well, maybe if I throw some of that in there and you know put some studs on his armbands or something, maybe it'll it'll be enough to get past what the uh, the editor was hoping for. And and it was enough to satisfy the editor that it was a revamp, uh, you know, that it was a bit of a re- redesign. So I kind of got away with that. Uh, but that, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have messed with the Rhino at all, get left to my own devices. But uh, so that was the reason for that. Uh, uh, Beetle had already been redesigned by Byrne. Uh, Boomerang had already been redesigned by Byrne. Uh, Hydro Man, uh, you know, didn't require any kind of a, of a redesign at all. Who am I forgetting? Anybody? Uh, Speed, Speed Demon. Demon. Yeah. Had just been, had already uh, had just fairly recently been redesigned in, in Peter Parker. I'm not quite sure who did the redesign, to tell you the truth, but it was uh, it was neat looking. And uh, yeah, so I mean, it, it was a, it was. I don't really remember the whether I contributed at all to the uh, to the makeup of the team at all. I don't think I did. But I enjoyed all those characters. I, I liked drawing every single one of them. So. Uh, and, and and there is precedent for Spider-Man fighting, you know, all those different types of characters. You know, he he took on he took on Quicksilver in a classic uh, Ramita story, and uh, you know, Hydro Man is basically sand a uh, wet Sandman. <laughs> so uh, it was a lot of fun, and I and again I got to draw Silver Sable. You know, I, what just occurred to me though, interestingly enough, Adam, is those two issues that we where I did layouts and Brett did finished pencils and inks. Um, on either end of that, there was uh, Rick Leonardi, because Rick Leonardi did the issue after that issue too, I believe, because uh, the second issue with the Sinister Syndicate ends with uh, Spider-Man feeling the effects of a uh, concussion. And I believe the issue right after that was uh, Rick Leonardi as well doing a, a story uh, with uh, X-Factor in it. You're right. You're absolutely right. Um, X Factor had just debuted, and uh, and they appeared as the you know the, their uh, mutant hunting identities and stuff in that in that story. So uh, Leonardi book uh, bookended those two issues. Apparently, all I can guess is that we were trying to gain as much time as possible. Mm. You know, all I, uh, I, I all I can guess at is that you know it was an attempt by. Uh, obviously to keep everything moving and to get as far ahead as possible. Um, you know, because we did have a few situations like that where he was uh, driving us pretty hard. You know, he would give us a new schedule and we would meet it and then he would give us a new schedule and we would work hard to meet that. And, you know, ultimately it didn't, didn't work out the way we hoped, but, uh, 
but uh, that would be my guess as to why all of that was happening mm-hmm. at that time. I have an awkward question for you. I mean, during this period, and obviously we've we've I've never pushed hard on the Owsley stuff, but I'm always curious. Like, did I mean? Obviously, there was a lot of politics and things going on, and it was getting harder. Was it ever still? Was it always still fun to be sit down and I'm drawing Spider Man? This is my dream. Or did, yeah. that, did that start to change a little bit as as it progressed? Well, there was no denying the the behind the scenes stuff was was difficult and. Uh, and painful at times. Uh, but the one thing I would say uh, that, that kind of, you know, there are certain things uh, from, from a lot of the stories that have made it out to public that don't hold a lot of water. And that one of them is if anybody thinks that I wouldn't have walked across hot coals to stay on Spider-Man, they're wrong. So that was my dream job. And to answer your question, yes. I mean, no matter what was going on behind the scenes, as I'm sitting there drawing Spider-Man, I was the luckiest man on the planet, period. And I would have done anything. I, I would jump through any hoops and walk across fire to maintain that position. And it, it just was not to be. But it wasn't because of lack of effort on my part or the Falco's part. Or, you know, it, it, it was a very divisive time and you know you can hear every side of the story and still come up with a lot of questions as to you know I can't speak to people's motivations and everything I can I can only speak to the facts of the situation and the fact of the situation is that obviously uh, chose to fire us from the from the title mm-hmm. When, so I'm going to flash forward to hope you're happier days. Uh, so ten years, okay. ten years later, you're, you uh, you end up working on the Amazing Spider-Man '96, which was the name for their annual that year. Now I'll get into who's inking you in a second, but first of all, like, how did that come about, or who who gave you the call? Like, you hadn't been obviously on Spider-Man for a long time. You'd been doing a lot of work with with Tom on you know Thor and Thunderstrike. So where did this annual for Amazing Spider-Man come about? Uh, the the editorial team, uh, Tom Brevoort and Glenn Greenberg. Uh, Glenn Greenberg is a, a, a terrific guy, and on top of being a, apparently a fan, um, he was he liked what Tom and I did on Spider Man. He was responsible for uh, he and Tom Brevoort were responsible for me working on uh, make, making the second call to me for Hobgoblin uh, Lives. So. Um, you know, it, it's, it's always nice when people remember you and liked what you did and keep you in mind when situations come up like this. This annual, it was a unique in that it was a divided annual, and the, the theme of the annual was just plucking stories out of continuity, you know, was doing something with the past. And uh, the other feature was by uh, Fabian Nicieza and Steve Lytle, and so we were hired to do, you know, half of the annual, basically. And we were given, you know, a, a wide open option. They said, you know, what, what story might you like to do from Spider-Man's past, from any period you would like? Uh, although we were told that Nicieza and Lytle were already going to do something with the black costume. So, you know, what would you like to do? And Tom said, well, let's talk about it, Ron. He goes, are there any classic villains that you would like to do that we had, didn't do in our regular album? Craven! <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so that helped us 
pinpoint a period of time in Spider-Man's continuity. And it opened up a whole bunch of neat little things we could do. Uh, and I don't remember whose idea it was initially, but we kind of keyed in on how about we show the moment when George Stacy figured out that Peter Parker was Spider-Man. And the only thing that, we, that, that, that qualified it for us was that during the period of time, and those are some of my favorite period of Spider-Man stories from the, the Ramita run through the Ramita Basema Mooney run. All those stories are just some of my very, very favorite Spider-Man stories ever. And there was a, a running subplot where Captain Stacy and Joe Robertson were meeting regularly to discuss Spider-Man and why he does what he does and who he might be and all, on and on and on. And what we didn't want to do in the story was necessarily say that Joe Robertson knows. Okay? Because basically, I think Joe Robertson knows. I don't even know if Joe is part of the storylines anymore. But my attitude, my belief as a reader during the Jerry Conway, Len Wein period and everything was that, that Joe is another person who knows and just hasn't admitted it. Um, but for the purposes of our story, we just wanted to center on George Stacy. Now, what that meant was they didn't come to the conclusion together. Mm. And what appealed to me, and I might have even been the person that suggested it, I don't remember. I, 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 Tom and I, the way Tom and I work, it's very hard to pull that thread and decide who came up with what. But what we decided on was that George's moment, George's epiphany, was something very personal. Mm. It was just a turn of phrase. It was just a, a familiarity that he had because he was around Pete because he was dating Gwendy, you know, that kind of thing. And it was a very, it, so that's what the whole story hinges on. The whole story hinges on, I believe, three words or three or four words. Isn't it like, heads up, Cap Stacy, something like that. Yeah. And, you know, he says it as Pete early in the story, and then he says it again as Spider-Man, and we see George's face just drop. Boom. And it, it hits him like a ton of bricks. Holy crap. And at that moment, he, he realizes. And uh, whether or not he ever shared it with Robbie is not our problem. <laughs> whether or not, you know, we weren't working on the regular title anymore. So, you know, whether or not Robbie knows is for other writers to determine. I don't know if that's ever been dealt with or not. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the moment we wanted to key in on. And in the meantime, it was right off of a period where uh, Norman Osborn had hired Craven uh, to to do some shenanigans, and, and uh, you know, so Craven was trying to get paid, and and so I, you know, it involved Harry and MJ and Gwen and the Coffee Bean, and it was just a heck of a lot of fun. And then, of course, I was told by uh, I don't. I don't remember when it happened. I don't think I knew when I was penciling it who was going to ink it. Oh, really? In fact, I don't think so. Uh, in fact, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure 
uh, in discussing it once or twice in the years uh, since, uh, I, I'm pretty sure I, I, I didn't know. But, uh, yeah, at one point, uh, Glenn Greenberg and Tom Brevoort called and told me that uh, Mr. John Romita Sr. was going to be inking it. And that just blew me away. (laughs) I I had been fortunate enough to work with him on, you know, uh, single projects. I mean, we worked together on some stuff for the Marvel Style Guide, I believe. I knew he was aware of my work. Uh, He inked me on a Spider-Man Index cover which I think was before that. So, I mean, I had been lucky enough to be inked by him on like a couple of covers and things, but uh, but yeah, the fact that he agreed to do it was just amazing to me and uh, a beautiful piece of work. It's one of my favorite, you know, uh, naturally one of my favorite pieces. Now, at the time we did it was during the period of time that uh, Ben Riley was swinging around in Spider-Man mm-hmm. in, the, in the costume that ultimately became the Spider-Girl design. Um, and so that's the framing sequence of the story because I, I thought it was fascinating because because Tom and I said yeah but now if we're gonna if we're gonna set it present day we got it and I said well that's not a problem though Tom because you know Ben is a clone so all of Ben's memories are the same as Pete's mm-hmm. so as far as the framing sequence goes it can be Ben Riley and he's thinking about all the women in his life and Gwendy was one of them and he has exactly the same memories of what happened with George Stacy. As, uh, as Pete would have. Uh, of course, at the time that George has his epiphany, you know, he doesn't inform Pete of it or anything. You know, Pete didn't know that George knew until until George passed. So that, that wonderfully dramatic scene mm-hmm. that Stan Lee and Gil Kane and John Romita did. So, so I have a question. So it, so it was interesting Please. to me rereading this. So I've, I've, I've always enjoyed this story, but it had been a while since I reread it. So I reread it. Uh, knowing that I wanted to chat with you about it. And one thing that hit me is um, the last page before you actually go full into the flashback. It's actually, you have a, a one shot of uh, Ben Riley in the Spider-Man costume, but without the mask on, just kind of standing there, arms on, at his side. And I have wondered for so many years where that shot was from, because it was used in Tom DeFalco's Ultimate Guide to Spider-Man book in like 2001 or something. And I always loved that shot and could never place it and it drove me nuts. And I re- was rereading. I'm like, of course it was you. <laughs> well, thank you. It, it was fun doing Ben. It was fun doing the blonde hair, you know. And it, and for me, anytime I come back on a character, what's always fascinating to me is, you know, Ben Riley's supposed to be the the the, the, uh, the spitting image of Peter Parker, but you know, it depends on who's drawing Peter Parker is whether or not. <laughs> Peter Parker looks like Peter Parker to me, you know. So I always have been, uh, you know, whether it was early on doing doing a little bit more Ditko or whether it was later in my run where I fully embraced my Ramita-ness, uh, it was a lot of fun working with Ramita to, to draw the blonde Spider-Man looking like Peter Parker, you know, <laughs> like a blonde Peter Parker. And yeah, I, I was having fun with it. I mean, I, that working on that issue had a lot to do with choosing that costume for Spider-Girl. Oh, really? Because, yeah, I mean, I liked the design when I, when I first saw it, uh, when it, when it finally saw print, because there was some early early uh, stuff that made it out into the order catalogs and everything where that they were, they were tweaking that costume until the last minute uh, in print. 
Uh, and what they finally did come up with, I thought was incredibly cool. I thought it was uh, very streamlined and, and fresh without being a complete and total change, you know. And so I liked it a lot. Uh, and, and it, I mean, for all kinds of different reasons, but, but when, it, when it finally came time to, you know, because in, in Tom's original plot, uh, and in Tom's original intent was just to have Mayday Parker wear, you know, a traditional Spider-Man costume. And I don't like the way the traditional costume looks on a girl. The, the, the split down the, the, uh, the red section coming down the middle interferes with the female profile and the, and the female figure and, and it just, it doesn't play as well for me. So I was looking for, you know, that was there and I, and I went, wait a minute, let me look at this a second and decided to use the Ben Riley costume for Spider-Girl and it just worked great with the female figure, the way the, 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 main, the bigger spider and the, the two arms come up over the breast and the two other, and the, and the other four legs go down under the breast. It just, uh, it wasn't until years later when I was working with Sal Buscema on Spider-Girl that Sal said, you know, he was working on the Spider-Man books when he introduced that suit and his first reaction to that suit was that it looked feminine to him. Really? Yeah. Yeah, isn't that weird? Interesting. And, uh, that's how we ended up using it. So, I mean, it was, uh, you know, but, but I, I would say that, that having a chance to draw it in that story had a lot to do with it being in the front of my mind when we did the Spider-Girl uh, one-shot and what if and, and uh, was well, a large part of me making the decision to use it, yeah. Now, when you're doing it, so it's so interesting to me that when you said that, like, you didn't know that Ramita Cena was going to ink before you did, penciled it. Because, I mean, obviously you go through a tonal shift of your own here because the framing sequence does feel different. It feels more modern. And then you're, you know, kind of aping a classic, you know, Ramita style. And then you have the actual guy himself inking it and adding that extra definition to really anchor it in its period. It's really worked out well. Yeah, I thought so. I, I thought so. I mean, I I wasn't going out of my way to try to do anything in the framing sequence. It was all that different. I mean, there were some more overlapping panels, and, uh, you know, uh, some structural things on the page that were maybe a little more similar to. Uh, anytime I think about, at the time, anytime I thought about modern comics during the 90s, uh, like on Thunderstrike or maybe in this case, uh, the only person that... I could see my way towards emulating in any way or looking towards for uh, a path forward as far as modern comics was John Romita Jr. And the way he told stories uh, so dynamically and what he did with, with panel arrangements and stuff. Uh, you know, the, the first several issues of uh, Thunderstrike, uh, I was studying Romita Jr. There was a miniseries he did with Cable Mm. that I remember having on my desk and I was paying a lot of attention to because I wanted it to to look current. Uh, I didn't want it to look in any way like a throwback book. You know, certain things that worked for Thor weren't going to work for Thunderstrike, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. So I was trying very hard to, to keep it uh, in trend. And Ramita Jr. was my path to that more so than any of the other image guys or anything, so... Hmm. Now you mentioned that Craven was kind of uh, part of the big, you know, thing that you kind of put forward. You really wanted to do Craven. What is it about Craven that you hadn't? I mean, obviously you hadn't had a chance to really do him yet. But what was it about Craven that made him jump out 
so quickly to the top of your head. The physicality, the physicality of the character. The first time I saw him was was uh, already a Ramita story. It was, uh, in fact, it was from very much the period that we were emulating in, in our annual story, where he threatened uh, Harry Osborn at Flash Thompson's going away party and all mm. this kind of stuff. It was it was all very much that period of time that. Uh, iconic cover that just has the huge figure of Craven with all the little Spider-Man figures uh, cameoed around him and everything. It was that issue. I had it in a Marvel Tales reprint. And so just the physicality of the character always really appealed to me. And and then when I finally did see the original Ditko appearances, even more so because he had such a, uh, a distinct face and everything. And uh, I mean, I look to Ditko now anytime I draw the character in commissions and such. But... Uh, you know, Ramitas was like very powerful, and and it really was that. It was just he's a a, a a wonderfully physical character to for Spider-Man to brawl with, you know. And uh, I mean, if you look at our run, our regular run on Spider-Man, which was really only like two and a half years, uh, Tom's uh, whole aesthetic for our run was to create new characters, was not to use the classic characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had some success, you know, creating uh, Black Fox and Puma and Silver Sable, and uh, he created the Rose with Rick Leonardi, and of course we were still dealing with Hobgoblin, and, and on and on and on, uh, Slide, you know, characters. Like, he was always creating new characters rather than using the classic characters. So you'll notice that whenever we got a chance to take another bite on the Spider-Man apple after our run, we were always using classic characters. Uh, <laughs> when we did a two-issue story that wrapped up the run of Web Spinners, uh, and again, that, that was another deal where you like got the cherry pick from anywhere in Spider-Man history, we were asked to do something of, with him in the black costume, and we used the Sinister Syndicate again, and uh, we used Doc Ock, because I had never gotten the chance to do Doc Ock in a story. Um, when I, 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 at one point, I was I was lucky enough to be working, uh, sharing a studio space with Pat Olaf while he was doing Untold Tales of Spider-Man, and I was asked to do a fill-in on Untold Tales. I don't think I requested it, but I got to do the Lizard, which I had always wanted to do the Lizard. Uh, so you know, all of the characters that I never got to do, the classic characters that we never did in the regular run, I I finally did get a chance to to do the ones that were really kind of at me to, to do them. <laughs> and uh, so yeah when, when Tom brought up you know well let's start with this what character would you what villain would you like to do and I you know before he even finished the question I, I said Craven what uh, actually speaking of kind of classic uh, Spider-Man villains are, are there any that this might be the wrong word, but like it would have intimidated you as an artist, or they would have felt difficult to kind of capture better than you know one of you know the original creator oh I don't I, I never have a feeling of trying to surpass the original creator. I'm very uh, I am uh, incredibly content as a creative person to work in the shadow of the greats uh, I, I'm just trying to entertain people I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel I'm not trying to supplant or surpass anybody uh, and I, I don't have any illusions of being able to do that um but yeah, I mean, there are a lot of characters that uh, any of the classic characters I would have loved to have taken a shot at because they were so well established and had such mystique given to them by 
Ditko and by Ramita. You know, I uh, I always had a uh, we had a Mysterio story in the uh, in the back of our heads uh, when we left Spider Man that I would have loved to have gotten around to. Um, so yeah, I mean, all the classic characters I would have loved to have taken a shot at. And I've got I've had a chance to draw them as as far as uh, commissions and things like that. And, uh, and, and I really enjoy it anytime I get, I get the opportunity to do it. Uh, I've done a couple of Sinister Six jam pieces as commissions where I've, you know, done the Vulture or whatever. I, I actually did a, a, a large uh, double-page splash commission, pencil commission of Spider-Man versus the Sinister Six, which was great, great fun. Uh, and again, I, you know, pretty much always go back to the original Ditko designs for the costumes and everything. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoy doing those characters. Jumping off of the commission question, um, or you mentioning commissions, uh, I know I've asked before about kind of the, the weirder commissions, but uh, so I'm going to keep it in the Spider-Man realm. What's the the Spider-Man villain that you're most surprised that you were asked to, to draw as part of a commission? Most surprised? Or more like taken aback, like, oh, someone wants this character by me? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do a lot of hobgoblins, which makes a, a certain amount of sense. I mean, I didn't co-create him, but Tom and I did a lot of work with Hobgoblin during our run, so that makes a certain amount of sense. I, I'm surprised anytime somebody asks for Venom, because you know, even though I did the early days of the black costume, I, I, I never did Venom in print until Spider Girl. You know, hmm. uh, that's my cat saying hello. <laughs> That's little sprinkles saying hello to Adam. But anyway, um, so surprised. I can't. It, as far as Spider-Man goes, I I'm so associated with Spider-Man that nothing Spider-Man related. Carnage. You know, uh, I've had a few people ask me for Carnage, uh, and and again, following that, you know, uh, uh, Venom thinking. I, why? <laughs> why? Why? I mean, we ultimately we did do him again, and we we did some some Carnage and Spider Girl, but uh, you know, as far as that, I, I, of all characters, the one that has surprised me, I've done two or three times as a commission, and is Thanos because I've I've never done Thanos to any extent in story, and I've jo- I've only half jokingly said I occasionally I think people confuse me with Ron Lim and ask me ask me to do Thanos. <laughs>
me a choice between Sandman or the Vulture, and, and I I love drawing the Vulture. I pull out the old Ditko and love doing the Vulture because he had such character in his face. It was just amazing what Ditko was doing with all of those characters. I mean, look at the original stories, the first appearances of Craven or Sandman or the Vulture, and these, these they were they all had these really distinctive facial structures and uh, really distinctive looks that are always a lot of fun to try to capture uh, for, for those characters. So, I mean, it, it's great fun. <laughs> Um, well, here's a, maybe a bit more random a question. Um, how often do you get commission requests for like supporting cast members? Not as often as you would think. Um, not as often as you'd think. I mean, I you know, I I have no problem drawing Mary Jane, and I've done my share of Mary Janes, but not as many as you would think. I, um, I my favorite supporting character is probably Jameson, uh, and I've. I think maybe early in my early days when I was actually on the book, I might have done a few, you know, con sketches that involved Jameson. But beyond that, you know, I, I guess within the last few years, somebody did ask for Jameson in the Spider-Man costume, you know, kind of like that deleted scene from Spider-Man 2, <laughs> you know, where, where Jameson puts on the costume and frolics around on his desk and stuff. So I, that was something I did not all that long ago, within the last several years, uh, on, uh, you know, for Catskill Comics. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I get those occasionally, but, you know, not as much as, as I would even, you know, prefer, to tell you the truth. If, if someone was to say, draw me a Jameson, in your mind, do you put him behind the desk banging it, or do you have him standing up and yelling at someone? I would probably have him uh, emoting more. Uh, my, it was always great fun drawing uh, Jameson having a meltdown. Um, <laughs> some of my favorite scenes we would do with, uh, you know, because DeFalco had fun writing the character, and we did a couple of interactions between Parker and, and Jameson that I just had great fun with. The one thing I will say about Jameson, though, is uh, I never drew him with the Hitler mustache, ever. Because if you look at Ditko's original design, he did not have a Hitler mustache. Hmm. Check it out. Go look. He has a full mustache. So I'm not quite sure where the Hitler mustache came from. And uh, so I, I don't do it. Uh, you know, I, I got to do a couple of cool scenes with Jameson in uh, the uh, the fill-ins that I did for Untold Tales with uh, Kurt Busiek and Roger Stern. And, uh, you know, he's a terrific character. I, I love the character. And... I love watching it. You know, I, I like drawing him melting down and uh, freaking out. And uh, but, but what I like about the character is that he has so many different sides to him. My big disappointment with the first three Raimi movies is that they didn't use J.K. Simmons. In the first movie, they, they hit all sides of Jameson because he was a blowhard and, uh, uh, you know... Uh, uh, bad boss and you know he was mean to Pete but he also when Green Goblin had him by the throat and said you know who takes the pictures he said I don't know you know they, they send them to us anonymously you know that kind of thing so he and he defended Pete bravely so you know I, I loved in that first movie that they did that I was hoping that that would continue and, and especially when they got to uh, the second one with with his 
son in it. I was really hoping that there were going to be more scenes where they wouldn't just play Jameson for comedy, that you'd get to see him as a, as a fully realized, well-rounded human being, because that's my favorite thing about the Jameson character that, uh, that Stan did with all the different artists, is that, you know, there, there was some stuff in the early 70s, the late 60s, early 70s, where, you know, Jameson was, is, is, Jameson's a stand-up guy. He's got a real blind spot for Spider-Man, but he's, he's a, a good reporter. You know, the, the, the thing that Robbie really needs to keep an eye on him about is Spider-Man. Mm. But otherwise, he's, you know, he's got a civic conscience. And he, I mean, I, uh, quite frankly, and, and it's just my personal opinion, I, I don't think if, in my head canon, if Jameson had, be, you know, if, James, if we would have done something where Jameson became mayor, I, I don't think he would have done some of the things he did in those stories where he was spending public funding to hunt mm. Spider-Man. Mm. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I, I, I think he would have been a little more balanced with that kind of thing. Or he would have had somebody there. I mean, keep in mind, he hired Robbie. Every time he banged heads with Robbie, he was paying Robbie's salary to bang heads with him. <laughs> And, you know, so he knew on some level, he recognized on some level that he needed Robbie there as a buffer. And, you know, I think he is, as mayor, as his responsibilities became greater, I think he would have carried through with that, with that dynamic. And uh, I, I just don't see Jameson being that irresponsible with that much power. Uh, I, I just, uh, that's not how I always saw Jonah. You know, I mean, yeah, he has he has a ridiculous blind spot when it comes to Spider-Man, and I guess some of those stories would fall under that umbrella, you know, because this is the guy that paid to have Spider-Slayers made. <laughs> you know, this is the guy who was responsible for the creation of the Scorpion and things like that, you know. There's no denying that. But uh, I, I like I liked Jameson I, I, as a character. I like him a lot. I, I, I think he's a, you know, when push comes to shove, I think he's a stand-up guy. I think he's jealous of Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. One thing that strikes me about your work on this particular annual is, well, and again, this is a, I guess a commentary on Tom as well, is again, there's so much in here. Uh, so it's not just like a, a breezy flashback tale, but everyone kind of has a purpose to the story. There's so many different elements that kind of uh, buttress against each other, which again, makes it so much more to kind of sink your teeth into. It's not just about, you know, George and, and Spider-Man, but it's also about, you know, this other thing that's going on with Harry and then Norman trying to, you know, get Harry to have a backbone. You have, uh, you know, Craven's still wanting, you know, more, uh, more of his honor. Uh, so he wants to kind of, to get it out of James, uh, sorry, out of Osborne. Like there's so many different elements, which I really enjoyed just how much meat there was on this bone. Well, thank you. I, and thank you for recognizing that again, though, that's, has a lot to do with DeFalco because he is a thematic writer. I mean, he always, we always pinpoint before we get too deep into the story or too deep into the structure, he's always very careful to pinpoint what the theme of the piece is going to be. And one of the things I remember about that annual is that I, I kind of ouched at his original title, okay? Because his original title was What I Did for Love. <laughs> and I, that just seemed kind of out of place to me 
But what he was going for and what the story is about, as, as you're saying, on every level, okay, what the story is about is passion. It's about, uh, you know, the, 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 the title I finally suggested to Tom and he, he liked was Heart and Soul was the title of the story. And Jameson is telling Peter, you, you know, you, you don't, your, your photos don't have any passion. You need to put your heart and soul into something. Uh, you know, uh, as you said, Craven is concerned about his honor. You know, he's pursuing doggedly the fact that he must do this to, to regain his honor. And finally, it comes to a uh, decision to be by the end of the story that there was no honor to be had dealing with Osborne or the Green Goblin at all, you know. Um, and he walks away without taking payment. Um, and and Harry's looking for his direction, and and Pete is trying to, you know, uh, commit himself to to the Gwen relationship and on and on and on that's what those stories are about there's even a couple of panels there with ned leeds <laughs> talking about you know his you know his his the foreshadowing some of the things that happened later with with he and betty brands you know and all this kind of stuff so you know tom is very good at staying on point when because when you're writing that when you're writing these kinds of stories every every character interaction every move of the story every turn of the plot should serve the theme and uh you know that was the theme of this was was heart and soul passion for what you're doing and uh making choices to uh fulfill that that need for mm-hmm. that passion i think i was curious about um rereading it is so you mentioned ned leeds so his visual is interesting because i, I can't like if i close my eyes I, I couldn't really tell you what Ned Leeds looks like. Like so many characters in Spider-Man's cast have such defining looks, and so his was interesting. That like even when I got to that panel, at first I almost thought it was Flash, but I was like, well, why would he be there? Why would he be holding Betty's hand? But it was just kind of interesting to me because, and I don't think that's a, a, a flag against you as an artist. I think it's just more. It's interesting that that character for some reason doesn't seem to have a definable trait that kind of speaks. You're absolutely to, right, though, Adam. The reason I the reason I chuckle is because. The colorists at Marvel, the editors at Marvel, never decided who Ned Leeds was. <laughs> when Ned Leeds was first introduced under Ditko and everything, and, and on to Ramita, and through, I mean, the, the most distinct Ned Leeds ever became was under uh, Marv Wolfman and Len Wein and Jerry Conway working with Ross Andrew. Ross Andrew came up with a very distinct look for Ned. His hair parted on the side, you know, that kind of thing. But colorists never knew what color Ned's hair was. <laughs> Ever. Ever. I mean, when we did him as a, you know, he was one of our uh, red herring suspects for uh, for Hobgoblin and everything. So we had a lot going on with Ned and his temper and all this kind of stuff. And <laughs> there probably are two issues where his hair is colored the same color. It's maddening. There are actually issues where I, I remember distinctly with Ned Leeds, and I don't remember the, the specific issue, but there was an issue where the colorist left his hair white. Oh, wow. Because they just gave up. <laughs> you know, I mean, is it, is it light brown? Is it orange-yellow? Is it, you know, is it, is it brown? Is it, is it blonde? You know, nobody, nobody knew. And I never knew... Uh, I mean, I, the only one I would I would guess I would say that if Ned Leeds appeared at all 
during the period of time that Tom DeFalco was the editor, then he knew what color Ned's hair was supposed to be. <laughs> but, I mean, it was crazy. It was crazy. Because as a fan, I would notice that. And so when we did them in the annual, I had to go back to what Ned looked like at the time. You know, so it was it was kind of an early Ramita mm-hmm. Ned Leeds. And he didn't even have the part that uh, Ross Andrew gave him. He just had a kind of a Peter parker haircut. And I think... That was actually one of the things they were trying to do with Ned early on is kind of make him the, you know, Betty's alternate Pete. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, of course. Uh, uh, so he had open hair, but nobody ever decided what color it should be. <laughs> he's, you know, Ned's an interesting character because, again, he's been around so long, or he was around so long. Or I guess he's kind of back now. I don't, or maybe he's dead again. I can't remember. But, I mean, he's been around for a long time, but... You maybe just never had enough of a personality or, or had enough of a, a purpose. Like, again, he was... Oh, well, again, yeah. I mean, again, I think uh, under Ross Andrew, I remember him having a lot more to do mm-hmm. and having a lot more... Because it, uh, it was under Ross Andrew that he married Betty, finally. Yeah. Uh, and, and all of that. And then he was, he was uh, you know, reporters make good uh, supporting characters because they... they give you an entree into a story you know they, they give you legs for a story and I can remember several times under the under Ross Andrews uh, uh, visuals that they used Ned in that way to to get Spider-Man or Pete involved in whatever the storyline was whatever the, the the crime story was and such so but but yeah you're you're not wrong I mean you're not you're, you're not wrong that, that Ned is always there were a lot of periods, I believe, where Ned was just kind of standing on the periphery, and nobody quite knew what to do with him. Um, you are right, though. He he was interesting. Like in the original Clone Saga, he had a lot to do there. Um, I mean, he ended up being you know kind of a hostage, but I mean, he was at least doing the work and getting tests done, and he was investigating. So, I mean, I guess that is the most I remember him really having an active role in the story. Right, and and, and again, we used him, you know, as if only as a uh, as a red herring. I wouldn't have had a problem with Ned being the Hobgoblin. I like the idea, I mean, of, of Ned being the Hobgoblin. Uh, Tom, uh, you know, initially threw Ned's name out to kind of keep everybody off balance, including our editor. I mean, which is, you know, which Tom's suspicion that the editor couldn't be trusted with the information ended up being true because Owsley was the one that wrote Spider-Man versus Wolverine where Ned gets killed. Uh, and apparently that was done to just kind of upend what Owsley thought was the story that Tom wanted to tell. I, I can't speak, again, I can't speak to why, I can only speak to what happened. And that happened. <laughs> I mean, at the time that Owsley chose to kill Ned in that one shot, he believed that that is who Tom DeFalco wanted to be Hobgoblin. So he had some kind of an interest in foiling that plot line. Um, it turns out that's not who Tom intended to do. I mean, Tom wanted uh, uh, Richard Fisk, ultimately, to, to be the Hobgoblin. And uh, so, you know, there's that. But, you know, we were using Ned as one of the red herrings because his his behavior was becoming more and more erratic under the pressure of his job and under the pressure of 
of his marriage with Betty uh, dissolving, and ultimately, you know, as Roger went and uh, and handled it uh, under the uh, <laughs> under the pressure of being mind controlled by the by the hobgoblin, you know. So, uh, yeah, it was it was pretty crazy stuff. It was, you know, but I liked Ned as a character. I I never had any problem with that. Ned was one of those poor guys that you know gets pulled in and uh, and, and is trying to kind of do his job and mind his own business but you know he's one of those supporting characters that sometimes gets put through the grinder just so the hero has something to do <laughs> so i have a question so we you mentioned earlier about you know when i was asking about how this annual kind of came about and you kind of made mention of hobgoblin lives now i'm trying to understand the chronology because hobgoblin lives came out late 1996 uh, obviously, this annual is from from '96, but Hobgoblin Lives now with Peter Parker restored as Spider Man. So, were you already working on Hobgoblin Lives when the annual came about, and then they, again they already had you in the Rolodex? Or I'm curious what I the... don't think so. I don't think so. I think the annual was done separately. Okay. Uh, because the thing with Hobgoblin Lives was uh, Roger had been pitching Hobgoblin Lives to anybody who would listen from pretty much the moment they, you know. It, that the Hobgoblin story got... <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to come up with a very political word for it because the Hobgoblin story got screwed up bad. Uh, it just fell victim to all of the inner office sh- shenanigans that were going on <laughs> and, and, and was victimized by all of that. So, you know, by the time we got to, you know, Ned Leeds gets killed, but then you find that Ned Leeds was the Hobgoblin, but he got killed by the Foreigner and the Foreigner's assassins, and and, and then it became Massendale and, and all this kind of stuff, you know, all the stuff that Roger had to clean up uh, for Hobgoblin Lives. He, you know, from the minute all of that happened, Roger realized there was a story to be told here that could get the character back to zero, back to where he, where he, where he had intended it to go to begin with. And he had pitched it to a couple of different editors down the line, and it wasn't until Brevoort and Greenberg that they bit, you know, that they said, you know, that, that's a, that is a story we think would be interesting to tell. And a lot of people at the time thought that way too much time had passed. You know, uh, Peter David thought it was ridiculous to pursue it. Tom Tafoko even thought that it, too much time had passed, and should just move forward and not worry about it but you know it was something that Roger wanted to do he, he found two editors who were willing to back him on it and I read the plot with the attitude that you know let's see if Roger can pull this off and by God he pulled it off I, I thought it was a wonderful self-contained three-part story that you know did everything it needed to do in the course of the uh, of its three three chapters now what I do remember distinctly is that they they you know the editors agreed to do it and uh, Romita Jr. had first dibs of course because he co-created the Hobgoblin with Roger mm. uh, he was too busy at the time he was otherwise engaged so they you know I was I don't even know if I was the second choice but I, I they made it <laughs> they made they made it to me in the Rolodex <laughs> uh, and you know I was more than happy to, to jump on board because I always love doing anything with Roger and certainly doing anything Spider-Man related. So, but yeah, I mean, I after I read the the, the plots, um, 
or the first plot or whatever they first sent me, I called the Falco and I said, you know, I, I, Tom, I understand how you feel about it, but in my humble opinion, Roger pulled it off because he, he, re, he was reintroducing characters that hadn't been in continuity for years, literally. Oh, yeah. But you didn't, it didn't matter because all you needed to know is who these characters were in regards to the story we were telling in those three issues. And he skillfully, I felt, accomplished that. You know? All the, the, the different uh, congressmen and city councilmen and all this kind of stuff that he had been dealing with in his original stories, he was able to reintroduce them and engage them into what was going on in those three issues and reestablish them as suspects and, and, and everything. Uh, and I thought it was terrific. You know, plus the fact it was my first opportunity, along with Roger's first opportunity, to uh, handle Pete and Mary Jane as a married couple. So, yeah. That was kind of cool, too. Yeah. No, it's an interesting book. So again, it's coming out late '96 uh, into into 1997. So I would have been about 13. Now this is when I actually start buying comics on a regular basis. Again, like I'd seen a few at a you know at a convenience store or whatever. But um, right when the Clone Saga ended, like the month after, um, Tom was writing Amazing Spider-Man at the time, and I started buying that regularly. So then I was like, oh, this is, this sounds really cool. This miniseries. So I experienced it as it was coming out. But again, not really knowing a lot about what came before. I'd read those Marvel tales which had, again, some Hobgoblin in them, so I knew, you know, some of the pieces. Um, it has one of my favorite things about, and this is a, such a nerdy thing, but one of my favorite things about any continuity-heavy and really rich book is a, a, a list of sources at the back. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Which I love. Um, again, the, to me, like that's that's the best thing. I love footnotes. I love learning things because I mean, again, I was new to understanding this world, but it made me feel like I hadn't missed anything. Like I was able to understand what was going on, even if I didn't get it in the story, which you did because Roger was very detailed. But then you get all these well, extra and, and pieces. In, in one of the trade paperback versions, Roger does a, a very detailed timeline with artwork and everything. Mm-hmm. Of the whole timeline of the entire uh, Hobgoblin saga, yeah, so yeah. So that's amazing. So I so I have a few questions here. So well, I'm many, but first of all, um, so for, forgive my naivete. Um, when had you worked with Roger before in terms of his his plots? Um, well, the besides the, the most famous one, but besides that. Besides that, uh, when did I work with Roger? Besides that, I, I don't know. I, that might have been the next our next opportunity. Okay. He scripted. Uh, there was some talk that if Spy, uh, Untold Tales of Spider-Man had survived, there was there was some talk about possibly reviving it. Kurt Busiek was moving on, and I think Pat Olaf was moving on. And I think the last issue was done by Roger Stern and me, and there was some talk about possibly continuing it with us. Uh, So there might have been a couple of one-shot deals along the way that Roger and I had done together. But yeah, we we haven't done a lot of work together. Uh, So this was really our first opportunity to, uh, to, to work together on anything extended, you know, more so than the kid who collects Spider-Man. But I knew Roger personally. I had done, uh, some shows with him and, and had met him and his, his wonderful wife and, and had spent time with him socially and uh, was a huge fan of his and we had become friends. So I was I was always open to any opportunity to work with Roger. Mm-hmm. Now, when you come on a book like this, it's so it's interesting to me. I'm curious. I mean, it's a miniseries, so obviously 
usually different types of schedules happen. But um, from an artistic standpoint, I mean, you have so many different inkers. I mean, you have George Perez in the first issue. You have McLeod on the on the last one. I forget who does the second one. And you Jerome have, K. Moore. Yes. Okay. But I'm just curious. So what what was going on behind the scenes that they kept switching inkers on you, considering it was just a three issue mini? Well, I, all I know for sure is that originally they thought they had George locked in for all three issues. He inked all three covers, uh, which were all produced at the same time, and they thought they had him locked in, but he was either called away for a prior commitment or uh, was offered, you know, a, a better opportunity. I don't, I don't know for sure. But, uh, you know, the original intent was he was going to do all three issues and was unable to, to do that. So they had to hustle to find somebody to do this fill-in for the second issue, and they ended up with uh, uh, Jerome Moore, who did a, a terrific job. The, the schedule, I remember, being tough. Uh, with the other work I was doing at the time, uh, I, I, I do indeed remember that uh, there were a couple... The, the end of the second issue... I had it all laid out, and Pat Olive had actually tightened up some pencils at the back end of the second issue. Uh, there were some pages that were uh, tightened up by uh, by Pat, and uh, Jerome didn't do the entire issue. Uh, Scott Hanna, I believe, yes. stepped in and yeah. did the back end. So it was more than just three anchors. It was four anchors and uh, one and a half pencilers. <laughs> For the for the three issues, the third issue uh, is I think holds together really well. I mean, I was back doing my regular pencils or my regular layouts or whatever. Uh, I probably wasn't filling in all the blacks or anything, but I was doing uh, back doing a regular layout job. And uh, and Bob McCloud did the finishes, which I thought were you know it was, it was it's a shame we couldn't get we couldn't have gotten more consistency in in there. But if it, it, it was what it was, you know what are you gonna do? What I always loved about that book is that, that felt like Betty Brandt's real coming out party. Um, that she finally kind of graduated into, you know, being a more serious kind of character and having more uh, agency. And so I always really appreciated that element of the story. That you know she was really kind of taking and um, she wasn't just the damsel anymore. And I always appreciated that. No, uh, that you used the perfect word. She was definitely gained more agency as a reporter. Uh, not somebody's secretary, absolutely, yeah. And and I, what I also enjoyed about it is, I mean, Roger, it, it, I, I, I happen to know that personally he's a huge fan of the Thin Man movies. And so he he likes strong female characters, and, and so it didn't surprise me at all that he handled Betty as well as he did. But he also got Mary Jane involved in the investigation. Mm-hmm. And there was that wonderful scene where Betty, Flash, and Pete and Mary Jane are kind of meeting and going over notes, and, and they're all, you know, Flash and Mary Jane are helping uh, with uh, with the case. And I, I, I couldn't help but think the way that, that the Rogers model for Pete and Mary Jane seemed to be the Thin Man stuff, you know. Are you familiar with that? I'm not, actually, no. Because I'm not either. <laughs> so I don't know the characters' names. But it's a it's a husband and wife uh, pairing that solve mysteries and uh, and and banter along the way, you mm. know. Uh, and uh, I know Roger 
was a big fan of it. So I, there were, I, I couldn't help but see some of that in, in how he was handling uh, Pete and Mary Jane's interaction and stuff, which I thought was very appropriate. worked really well. One thing I, I didn't really think of at the time, and I wouldn't have known better, but now looking at it, I'm curious about, is you have the original Hobgoblin kills the you know most recent Hobgoblin. Um, I mean, that's an interesting meta-commentary from, from Roger, don't you think? Yes. I, I, I thought it was wonderful in the first issue that uh, that's the first thing he does. Uh, when the Hobgoblin decides he's going to come back on stage, is he uh, clears the deck. And, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was... Yeah, you, you, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. It is kind of meta, but it also worked in the course of the, you know, it, it was very powerful for the storytelling. That because at the time it was around the time of the, uh, the, the disguise that Hobgoblin's wearing when he shows up in the prison when he breaks into the prison is very much based on the, uh, the uh, uh, what do they call it when they, they, they do the, the police sketch of the Unabomber? Oh yeah. Huh. And uh, that was very uh, current at the time, so Roger was definitely throwing that out there too. Uh, but yeah, I, I I thought that scene was was terrific. Uh, I, I thought it was a uh, I, it was one of the things that we kind of carried through when we had the opportunity to use uh, Roderick Kingsley in Spider Girl. Is that he's he's scary. He's he's brutal. He's he's uh, uh, um, methodical and and cruel and you know he's he's scarier to me in his own way than the Green Goblin because as Roger would always say Norman Osborn was crazier than a soup sandwich but <laughs> but but Kingsley isn't Kingsley is is incredibly sane and frighteningly so and very deliberate in what he does, very deliberate in his criminal activity, very deliberate in his cruelty. So, yeah, I, I, I thought that scene was very powerful. So uh, I got a kick out of it. It was, it, was, it was a fun ride. I enjoyed it quite a bit. It has uh, what I think is just such a great kind of uh, image to start the book to uh, in that first issue where you just have the Hobgoblin mask and you have Spider-Man back underwater. Like, you know, it, it immediately grabs your attention. Like, you're, you're in for a ride. I, I, I thank you, and you know, it, um, you know, I, I, the only thing I can kind of say to that, Adam, is, uh, you know, that's what we're expected to do. You know, I mean, Roger's a pro. Uh, I'd like to think I'm I'm a pro. I'm, I'm a pro in regards that I get paid to do this. I'm always <laughs> trying to get better, but yeah, no, that's what they're paying us for is to uh, is to uh, keep you entertained and to, and to draw you in. You know, that splash page is. You know, it used to be even more important. The covers and the splash pages used to be so much more important when we were on the spinner racks. You know, mm. but uh, yeah, but you want to you want to grab somebody and yank them into the story. <laughs> I have a very broad question, and I don't, I don't know if I've ever asked this before. But um, obviously, you've produced you know countless pages, not to mention countless commissions. Um, you know, how, what of your original art have you kept, or that is of sentimental value that you have kept for yourself after all this time? Uh, I don't have a lot. I, I, I have some stuff from Thunderstrike. Uh, I have a few Thor pages. Uh, I don't. I, I had pages from the Kid Who Collects Spider-Man, and I was uh, in the early 2000s. I was between jobs and uh, sold off some things that 
I really would have preferred not to uh, out of necessity. So uh, I don't have anything from the Kid Collect Spider-Man anymore. I wish I did. Um, I don't have any of the early Spider-Man stuff. A lot of that was sold uh, and is out on the market now. Um, so, I mean, uh, you know, I, I did. I, you know, when I got to the point where I was able to, most of the stuff I've kept is for very personal reasons. It's for either for a story reason or for a, uh, you know, uh, just a creative satisfaction type reason. I still have the double-page splash of Surtur reaching for Thor that was page two and three of Thor 400, <laughs> uh, inked by Joe Sinnott. You know, so there, there are still a few things that I've managed to hang on to even during lean times, you know. But, but like many collectors, you know, you, you find yourself during periods of time where you have to let go of things that you never wanted to let go of. Uh, keeping it on Hobgoblin Lives, one of my favorite pieces was the uh, trade paperback cover to uh, Hobgoblin Lives that uh, I believe it was inked by Scott Hanna, I think. I think so. Yeah. I think it was Scott Hanna, and it had the Twin Towers on it, and uh, was a piece of art that I really, really liked, and it was another one that I had to let go at the same time I let go of uh, of the pages from Kid Who Collects uh, to a collector, because, and I didn't really, I did not want to, but, uh, you know, bills had to be paid, so... It's a great cover because it's so descriptive. Like, there's so much, like, you, you build so much of what's in the series, uh, in the kind of the, the backgrounds. Um, it's like a movie poster, yeah. I, yeah. Was trying to, I, I was trying to treat it kind of like a movie poster, yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny, the minute you say that, I'm like, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> well, I, you know, it, I was just, uh, overall, I was very happy with the way it came out. I liked the Spider Man figure, I, I liked the Hobgoblin figure, and I, I thought it worked well. And, uh, you know, it was uh, it was a piece that I I really did like, but uh, you know, there's I mean I I still have the I'm hanging on to the cover of uh, I was you know I, I just reached, not all that long ago did a, a variant cover for Spider-Man 600 and I'm hanging on to that <laughs> and uh, you know I've been even the pages for uh, for the one shot we just did with. Uh, self-improvement I know all of those were, were went out onto the market yeah in fact I believe you know somebody who <laughs> bought a page or two of it yeah yeah no I, I I love that book and I love my page so I'm very happy about that <laughs> it, it made me laugh when I guess the day we're recording this you had updated I think your Facebook photo and it was that it was a shot from that page and I had yes. to had to say that I was like beautiful page that's why I bought it <laughs> yeah it was that was a lot of fun doing it I mean I, I it's still you know I mean, Pete's just one of the best characters ever, and it's it's always a joy to to work with the character. One thing that's always um, that I've always loved about your Hobgoblin, and it's pretty consistent throughout, and especially in the in Hobgoblin Lives, is uh, you use again great use of shadow over you know the cowl, and so you just see kind of black and just the red eyes shooting shooting through. And it would seem like that'd be a simple thing to do, but I've seen a lot of people not do it as well as you. Um, So what? So how do you make that work so well? Um, it, it, I think it mostly just matters on how you use it. I, I try to use it sparingly, uh, but, you know, that was something that Ramita Jr. did in the first few issues, because anytime I do Hobgoblin, you know, just the way I was talking about it, anytime I do the Sinister Six characters, I go back to Ditko, 
anytime I do Hobgoblin, when I was doing her in, doing him in Spider Girl and did him in uh, you know in anything in commissions, and I go back to those early issues of uh, by Ramita Jr. and uh, and even more so, there's out on the web you can find his original model sheet for for Hobgoblin. Uh, that, that he showed, you know, the, the turnaround to the character, and he showed a couple of shots of the mask and, and, and everything, what made the mask different and unique from the Green Goblin. And, uh, so I always, if, if there's any time at all to do it, I always go back to the original conception of the, of the character. Uh, I was just looking through some Spider-Girls recently where we did Hobgoblin, and several of the close-ups of the Hobgoblin are direct lifts from the early issues by Ramita Jr. Mm. I mean, I, you know, nobody nobody does the character better than the guy that designs the character, you know. So I always kind of went back to that. I, you know, you do try to use it sparingly because I've, I, I've heard other people like, uh, I've even had people with commissions request the, the shadow, you know, the full shadow with just the red eyes and stuff. But, you know, when you're, being paid to do a hobgoblin if they don't specify you almost feel like you might be cheating them if you don't use the face (laughs) you know that kind of thing so it it, it creates a little bit of a conundrum there as well so on commissions unless it's a direct request on commissions you're probably going to get his his nose and mouth too but uh, (laughs) like i said a few people have just requested the the red eyes uh, in, in the shadow but uh, it, it's a great visual yeah it really does work well to uh, to show uh, mood and uh, you know uh, build tension or create a certain sense of uh, horror with the character so, mm-hmm. yeah. something I, I don't think again I noticed as a kid but doing a more modern read I've, I've noticed more in the first issue you have a very kind of sly cameo of uh, Lieutenant Stone and others from Code Blue. Was that coming from you, or was that discussion with Roger? I mean, obviously, that's your character. I think it came out of a discussion with Roger, because he, you know, he's always game for that kind of continuity. Um, I honestly, at this point, it's been years, and I'm sorry, but I, I, I don't, I don't remember if it came directly from me, or if it was something Roger did, because, you know, he knew that I had co-created Code Blue, or what, but he used them very effectively, and it was great fun for me to handle the characters and stuff, you know, because anytime anybody in the Marvel Universe interacts with Code Blue, I mean, I, you know, our intent was, you know, if you needed a cop, (laughs) you know, (laughs) most of the superheroes, if you were going to interact with the NYPD, you were probably going to interact with Code Blue, even if it wasn't our group of uh, five or six people, you know, our intent was that each precinct would have a Code Blue team. And, uh, you know, we never got a chance to, to really expand on that uh, in Thor. But uh, I had created a second Code Blue team that were, they called themselves a wolf pack. And, uh, you know, I created another five, five or six characters that would have populated uh, a different precinct's Code Blue team. Because Code Blue, it it became kind of an official nomenclature, but it started out as a nickname. Mm. Uh, You know, it was it was a it was a bad joke. It started out as a joke. The the other cops were calling them Code Blue because Code Blue is uh, a a critical 
uh, it's code for critical in the emergency room. And everybody was assuming that they were <laughs> they were going to get killed. They were going to get slaughtered out there fighting supervillains. So that's where the word, that's where the, the original name came from. And it, it, there were a couple of times in Thor that uh, Al Milgram would add it onto like their license plate, Code Blue, and it's like, ah. <laughs> it wouldn't say Code Blue unless they bought it themselves as a joke, you know, that kind of thing. So, uh, but what can I tell you? <laughs> but yeah, it was neat. It was. I loved having Spider-Man interact with him. I, that was a, you know, I don't remember whose idea it was, but it was definitely a gift from Roger to me. So. Okay. Now, in the first issue, there's two specific things I want to ask about. One is um, when you have a great sequence of um, uh, Jason Philip McIndale having a bad dream in prison, and he's dreaming about you know when he was the Jack Lantern, and when you know he, basically he's having a dream about the Hobgoblin as well. Uh, there's some really cool visual like kind of color effects, but I'm I'm not sure how much of it is just color or how much of it is coming from your pencils because it almost looks like there's an extra kind of waviness to the image. No, and, that waviness was done. Uh, with computers okay. uh, after the fact. I penciled those as straight panels and that was added by, I would assume the colorist, but I don't know that for a fact, uh, you know, because at that point colors were being done in the computer and, mm-hmm. and that was, yeah, that was a, a, uh, an added effect after the fact for the artwork. Okay. So if you would have bought an original page from that sequence, it wouldn't have had that effect on it. Um, one thing that sticks out to me, so obviously we talked about the fact that, you know, you have the hobgoblins coming back, so he kills off the other hobgoblin. But it, again, it almost felt like putting almost too fine a point on it when you have, you know, the, the charred skeletal remains, like, to make sure we know that he's not coming back. Yes. Uh, and uh, we, we only saw the hand. I, uh, yeah. I, I don't like, I, I'm not a horror guy. I, you know, I, I liked that scene, and I thought it was, you know, powerful to reestablish the uh, ruthlessness of the of the actual hobgoblin, but you know I handled it as tastefully as anything like that can be handled. Uh, but yeah, I, it, that was a little bit more than I sometimes do. But I, I thought it was appropriate to the to the situation. Yeah. So it leads up to, uh, you know, the big kind of reveal. We finally have the original Hobgoblin back in full costume. He's, you know, taken to the sky. So my two quick questions about that. One is, first of all, what was it, you know, how much did you really kind of spend on making sure that this was a good money shot, like this was the moment? And the second was, um, we talked before about how, you know, the difference between the Hobgoblin and the Green Goblin is the Hobgoblin was not insane. He was, you know, knew exactly what he was doing. It's interesting that Roger has him laughing as he's getting dressed. So I'm just curious about your thoughts there. Well, he, he was a, a heady moment for him because he had been in kind of an enforced retirement uh, so as not to rock the boat. You know, whatever he was doing behind the scenes, he was content to let Mazendale have the identity for, for some period of time. But now he was ready to re-embrace, uh, you know, his criminal enterprises and to, uh, to, to come back to center stage. So he, it was a very heady moment for the gentleman. So uh, he was uh, he was feeling it. He was, uh, he was he was enjoying the moment. Don't begrudge the man enjoying the moment. <laughs> I mean, I never really thought as much more than that. To tell you the truth, you know, uh, he was really enjoying being back on the glider and enjoying uh, uh, sowing his oats. You know, I mean, uh, imposing his will 
and uh, you know taking a human life and, and reclaiming his mantle and everything and I, I think it was just a real uh, you know heady moment for him and I, I that's I didn't see it as an insane type of a laugh at all it was very much a you know I'm back and people are gonna feel it you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, and, and as far as doing any kind of money shot I, if you're gonna work for Marvel Comics then it behooves you to you know get comfortable with money shots <laughs> you know, money <laughs> shots is us you know I mean it's one of my favorite things in the world to do to uh, Falco calls them this is my costume shots you know that kind of thing because you, I, I always endeavor to make them as, uh, as representative as possible uh, you know you want it to be uh, action packed and you want it to be dynamic but you also want to make it a pinup shot show the costume and show the character uh, to their full effect and uh, that was definitely a situation that called for it yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. and it was very much in the plot you know I mean because you're right it's the moment he reclaims his mantle and puts the suit on for the first time in months and months and uh, you know comes flying right at the reader if I remember correctly was it in the original printing or was it in one of the trade paperback printings that the uh, that there was a color plate missing or something like that. Oh, really? You know, I'd have to go check my original issues. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't remember now if it was... It might have been in the first uh, trade paperback collection or something uh, that had, uh, they, they slipped a plate and it, the colors were all off oh. uh, on that shot. <laughs> of all the shots of, of, right. of everything in the book to, to mess up, the, you know, the money shot was the thing that got messed up. So... I, but, um, do a, I, do, I do have a question about about the Hobgoblin. I just was remembering this um, when we were talking about issues two eighty two eighty one of Amazing Spider Man. Um, whose decision was it to kind of add the red kind of control disc that was on his chest? That was DeFalco's. Uh, he wanted to come up. Uh, his point with villains is any you know if, if you read tom's material if you notice you'll notice again if you reread some of tom's material anytime a supervillain comes back okay he's coming back with something added either tom will stress that he has been training that he has been watching video of the hero or something, you know, he will come back with a new gadget, with a new gimmick, with something that will make sure this time he wins, okay? He, he, he always stresses that this guy, he's just not coming back hoping this time he'll win. He's coming back with something extra. And so when, he, when we brought him back that time, after some time off, uh, Tom came up with the, the, the rapid fire device because he was he was suspecting that Spider-Man had Spider-Sense, the, this early warning thing, because you can't lay a hand on him, you can't nail him. So he came up with this random uh, arm sheath that once it was activated by pressing that button, we needed something to show physically. I didn't want to have an exoskeleton mm. on his arm to break the flow of the costume. So to indicate that it was under the costume, I added the disc so that he would press the disc 
and basically his arm was no longer under his control. It would go mechanical, and it, and it went straight out and locked. And he was, it was random fire, so he wasn't controlling where it was firing. It was like a, it was like opening up with a, uh, with an auto, a fully automatic weapon and firing his finger blaster randomly in the hopes that that would get past Spider-Man's spider sense mm. and, and enable him to nail Spider-Man, and it worked. So. Interesting. I'm just curious why that... I, it's interesting because that is a visual that feels like it never got... You know, it hasn't come back. Like, we've never kind of seen that since... No, no, it was it was a moment of its time. It worked, and, uh, and then he was defeated, and, uh, you know, everything went screwy, and, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that kind of thing. I mean, it, the, the plot element, aside from enabling him to almost kill Spider-Man at one point, it also became a plot point because when, during the course of that fight, when uh, Hobgoblin switches places with Flash Thompson, it puts Flash Thompson in one of his spare costumes and switch place, switches places with him. Uh, that's how Pete finally realizes, and I think uh, one of the ways they prove that Flash wasn't the real Hobgoblin because there are photographs mm. from that fight where he has the disc, the real Hobgoblin has the disc on his chest, but when, at the end of that fight, when Pete finds Flash in a Hobgoblin costume, it doesn't have the disc on it. And they're able to use that as uh, as a clue, if not evidence, that uh, that Flash was not the real Hobgoblin. Mm-hmm. So. There, there's a, a sequence in the second issue of Hobgoblin Lives um, which is again a very goblin thing to do. Which is you have to have them unmask, but behind something. Um, and again, that goes back to the Dicko days. Um, yes, th- was that kind of the inspiration you would have whenever you would do that kind of sequence oh, to kind of ape that? I'm sure in Roger's plot, it said you know, like it, it, he probably sent me uh, when Roger sent you a plot, he sends you all of the visual reference you could possibly. Uh, need and I'm sure he probably sent me the original Ditko shots of the same thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it was done as a uh, as an homage to to all the original uh, teases that Ditko would do with with the Green Goblin. One other thing I was going to add real quick, that, that little tidbit, is that when I was preparing to work on uh, Hobgoblin Lives, I came up with a. Uh, based on everything they had done with Massendale and with uh, some of the dif- the different designs for Hobgoblin, because one of the things they had come up with that, w- that never got used uh, much was this cape that was lined with circuitry that enabled Hobgoblin to just fly without the use of the glider. And because multiple writers were doing the character, it got lost between issues. Uh, because somebody had intended, I think Ramina Jr. had intended to get rid of the glider uh, and have the Hobgoblin float Hmm. and fly. Um, And I played with that idea and created an updated version of the Hobgoblin, and I sent it to Roger, and I said, would you be interested in using this? And he said that he liked it, but if we're, you know, the whole point of this story is the real Hobgoblin is coming back. 
And if we're going to do the real Hobgoblin coming back, let's we're going to make it the Hobgoblin. You know, we're going to make it the established Hobgoblin that Roger Stern and John Romita Jr. created. And I completely agreed with that. The design uh, in What If 105 of Normie's Green Goblin oh, yeah. is the design that I came up with for Hobgoblin with all the color shifting. Oh. With all the with the orange and, and uh, dark green shifted over to uh, to the green goblin colors, but it's very much the same design and it has the same circuitry in the cape and it has the you know the same mystique that I was uh, pitching for uh, for for hobgoblin. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I finally found a use for it <laughs> a few years <laughs> later on uh, on Spider Girl. The, uh, the, I mean, this series is obviously, you know, is, is Roger, fi- you know, kind of fixing the narrative, um, and kind of retconning other elements, which is a Herculean task, to say the least. Um, I've always kind of liked that you have, a ha- you know, Peter pretty naturally is just talking with MJ, and she's kind of the one who's able to kind of figure out, well, hold on, the foreigner's assassins couldn't have killed, you know, Ned if he was really the Hobgoblin. Um, I've seen online some people thinking that's too simplistic, that she's the one to figure it out. I always kind of liked it. What was your kind of feeling on it? I loved it, because it was Roger's response from day one. Uh, Peter David will defend it, because he was the one that came up with it, that these trained assassins could do this. But, you know, Roger had established that the, the, that Hobgoblin had used the, uh, the, the goblin juice and he had super strength uh, akin to Spider-Man's. And, and, and so, you know, how the normal powered assassins wouldn't have a chance against him. Uh, and the way it played out in the story was, you know, it just, you know, Roger, I, I don't think he, you know, he might have played with some other more elaborate ways for Pete to realize it, but those are how things happen. <laughs> uh, you know, Pete says, you know, he, he saw pictures, he knows that that was before the foreigner was using superpowered assassins, and, and he just says, holy mackerel, why didn't that ever occur to me before? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And, and Mary Jane says, you know, none of us were in our right mind after that. I mean, it was, it was crazy. You know, and uh, so I, yeah, I, I thought it worked fine as a moment of uh, epiphany for Pete, um, and it was basically Roger making his his argument that he had had ever since that scene had seen print. Uh, that was Roger's argument that uh, wait a minute, Tom Devlin has super strength. Mm-hmm. He would have wiped up the room with those guys, you know. I always, I mean, again, I've, I'm a huge fan of of the series, so I mean, I really enjoy it. What I like about it as well is in terms of how it's paced, and this is a little bit less about the art for a second, and I'm going to, um, you know, give uh, Mr. Stern a lot of praise for a second, but, you know, the fact that they use such a great inciting incident that, you know, the Hobgoblin's having a trial, which seems, like, reasonable, that would happen, but it brings up all this stuff sim- simultaneously in each person felt very natural. Like, it felt like they used a good inciting incident that made sense, and then we got to kind of see the story flow from there, and everyone having very different reactions to that one event, and then it spirals out into something bigger. But even the reason for the the event was, if you remember, the event wasn't just the trial. The event was that Massendale, early in the story, at his arraignment, openly admits 
that he wasn't the original hobgoblin. Yep. And, you know, and, and throws out the fact that Ned Leeds was and, and says publicly for the first time that, you know, that Ned Leeds was the hobgoblin. And his intent, as stated in the story, because, you know, uh, Code Blue said, you know, the, one of the members of Code Blue, Stone or somebody, says to him, what, what, are, you, what are you playing at? And he goes, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing it up there because that's going to prolong everything. You know, this means more trials. This means more investigation. This means I have all the time in the world. Which, of course, by the end of the story, ends up not being true. But his whole plan was to create confusion and create chaos with the whole identity of the Hobgoblin so that it would be harder to pin Hobgoblin, you know, what, what Hobgoblin crimes he committed on him. And it would require other investigations and, and other grand juries and, and the whole bit. And I thought that was incredibly clever. You know, I mean, it was using a real world instance to set the plot in motion. And you're right. Uh, Betty is, is traumatized because now it's become public that, you know, that Ned Leeds was the hobgoblin and on and on and on. And, uh, and that's what sets the plot into motion, yeah. What's interesting, too, is that when you really think about it for Mackendale, that he is the engine of his own destruction there. Like, he, you know, he doesn't obviously know that the real Hobgoblin's still out there and that because of his words, which is just meant to keep him alive longer, it actually hastens his death. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. It's a great series of consequences. And again, well well put together and well played. Again, uh, you know, Roger's great at that, so it's not a surprise. No, I, I yeah, it, it, the structure of the story I think is 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 terrific. Over the three issues, it's like a great movie that you know you didn't have to. I mean, every every all the major uh, historical points and all the major uh, plot points and everything are all covered naturally within the framework of the of the story. And you know, like, again, all those characters that hadn't appeared in the strip in years were all covered and reestablished as suspects and their motives are reestablished their reactions and relationships to the other characters are all reestablished and I thought it was all very skillfully done yes what uh, no a, a big part of the you know the series is on it hinges on your artwork in, in terms of being able to well I mean not everything does anyway because it's visual medium but um, in terms of how you draw Kingsley and how you kind of handle obviously the personality changes based on what he who is actually, you know, pretending to be who at whichever point. It's such a weird, fine point to be able to manage. How did you kind of take on that challenge? Because, again, you're kind of shifting back and forth. You have, you know, a, a, a Roderick who looks like himself, who's got the confidence, and then you also have him, again, looking the same, but also now acting visibly, visually different. How did you kind of take on that challenge? Well, I didn't have to do any scenes where Roderick was playing Daniel. Uh, because, uh, or or Daniel was playing Roderick. Because by the time we establish at uh, is it the end of the first issue? No, he doesn't. Un- he doesn't unmask in, in, in the first issue. It's in the second issue that uh, Hobgoblin unmasks, and we finally establish the, the 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 relationship between the two of them. But because they're both in all the scenes. Uh, you know, Roger's uh, 
foreshadowing of all of this hinged on the fact that Daniel, who is bald, would wear a hairpiece and stand in for Roderick. Uh, but uh, Daniel is not the savvy, hard-edged person that Roderick is. He can only play at it. So, uh, but I never had to to draw Daniel acting like Roderick. Uh, I, I had to draw Daniel being Daniel, and I had to draw Roderick being Roderick, but I didn't have to draw uh, the other. You know, I, by the third chapter, there's the, the sequence where they finally unmask him, uh, you know, where Betty takes the and pulls the hairpiece off of Daniel, and and Pete pulls the mask off of Hobgoblin that, you know, basically, you know, Daniel is sweating and frightened and scared and Roderick is evil <laughs> and angry and uh, resolute, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so those kinds of emotions are very broad and very easy to play. But I, I didn't really have to play the subtleties that some of the artists did early on with, with Roger in Peter Parker. Mm -hmm. I believe it was like Marie Severin and Bruce I so. Patterson, I think, were the art team yeah. uh, for a lot of that stuff that was establishing uh, the Kingsley dynamic. The the uh, the you know the dueling panels where you have those two dual maskings or you know de-hairing I guess um, what um, was that pretty early on in the script like that was going to be there as to make sure it drove it yeah, home that was all that was all in Roger's plot Roger's a, a very tight plotter yeah right. so uh, I mean as I've often said about the, uh, the kid who collects Spider Man which is absolutely true is Roger is is the he sends you all the reference you will need he's a very tight plotter. Your job when you're working on a Roger Stern script is just don't screw it up. <laughs> He's giving you everything you need to look like a friggin' genius. Just don't screw it up. So uh, I try not to. <laughs> I try not. So in in that tight plot, did he also have? I mean, again, so on that same page where you have that that dual kind of uh, unmasking at the on right. the bottom half, you have Spider Man riding the Goblin Glider with uh, you know the Hobgoblin webbed up, and obviously that's an homage. Was that always yep. in the plot? Yep. Yep. It's yep. really well done, by the way. I mean, it's a it's a great. <laughs> It is an awesome image to watch, especially because you can see Kingsley like absolutely seething. Like the amount of uh, anger uh, emanating off of him is is really something. Well, that's actually you know foreshadows the the whole end cap, which I loved. That uh, Pete is able, Pete and Betty are able to slide in the recording uh, into his cell. And uh, Spider-Man gets his last shot in at the end there uh, by leaving the tape of uh, of uh, Kingsley's own voice talking to Massendale. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you, you know, the last shot we see of, uh, of Kingsley is him screaming in impotent rage <laughs> in his cell, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and I, I really enjoyed the, the, the final denouement scenes where everybody's saying their goodbyes and, and Pete and Mary Jane are finally left alone and, and Pete gives a couple of panels thought to the tragedy that often befalls the women in his life. And, 
Um, you know, I, it was it, it was really interesting. It was, it, I was I was glad that my first time handling Pete and Mary Jane as a married couple, I was in the safe you know, the safe haven of being in Roger's hands because Roger knows those characters so well handled them as a mature married couple which is unfortunately wasn't always the case at that point in spider-man history no especially you know, not. Or, or in other points in spider-man history since the wedding you know i mean there were there were times when it was a very uh adolescent view of what marriage is to you know a supermodel you know that kind of thing it was uh, a little disappointing uh, but you know, this was not handled that way, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. They, they they play really well off each other, and they feel like people who do know each other so well and do operate well as a team. Um, I mean, the series is obviously a great way of you know Roger being able to kind of write the record and, and restore what his original intent was. And I mean, that, right. how often does that happen? You know, like the fact that it does, no, it, that was a very rare thing. That was a, a real gift. Roger from uh, Brevoort and Greenberg, I think. And I, and, you know, the, the, what's interesting to me is the argument is from from certain quarters is that you know what was the point of doing it? Well, the point of doing it was to tell an entertaining story. I mean, it wasn't just Roger grinding an axe to get you know back on course. I mean, it wasn't like you were just watching a lecture for three <laughs> issues. I mean, it was a very entertaining story. That, that that grew out of his wanting to you know see you know to challenge himself and to see if he could uh, if he could write this ship you know and, and I, I thought it was I thought it was worth doing because as a as, as a fellow creator you know I mean we all wish we could do that kind of thing you know we, we all wish we could uh, have a, a, a constant, rain on the characters we create you know that's just not the fact that's just not the the, the reality mm-hmm. of the publishing world right now you know we create these characters for the publisher you know I would like to be the only person that ever works on a Mayday story I would like to be the only person that ever handles a Thunderstrike you know the Thunderstrike character but that that's not the way it's going to work that's not the way it works at all uh, the Puma has been through the meat grinder. <laughs> you know, I I would have loved to have been the guy that could say, "No, you're not going to do that to the Puma." But that's not how it works. You know. I guess it's interesting in in an industry where you know even Electra comes back. You know, for such an important right. character to Frank Miller's original Daredevil run. I mean, anyone can come back. Oh yeah, it, it's a shame. It's a shame. I it, you know it it would be nice if there was a little bit more attention paid, you know, because ultimately it becomes an editorial issue. You know, ultimately it's up to the editors uh, to be this the, the final steward of the characters and to say yay or nay when a writer has a, an idea and, and to decide whether or not that idea best serves these characters in the best way. Uh, so, you know, and, and those opinions, those uh, dynamics are constantly shifting and changing and mm-hmm. you know that's the way the business works so, it's interesting I mean, that, you know it's not like it's not like i haven't made a career handling characters that were created by other people <laughs> and you know 
who's to say Jack Kirby wouldn't have seen the Eric Masterson run and said, what are you idiots doing? You know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, I'm quite sure he would have, you know. It's interesting looking at Hobweb and Lives because it's both additive and subtractive in a very unique way that, you know, you get rid of a version of the Hobgoblin, but you replace it with, you know, the superior original one. I mean, there was definitely a story to be told with, you know, Mackendale never really living up to the original. But, you know, at the time when, you know, they killed him off, that story had kind of been told and it was morphing into kind of a weirder, newer story. And so this was a way of kind of putting the, you know, the best version of the Hobgoblin back on the shelf that people could use again. I mean, and when we finally decided to use the Hobgoblin in Spider-Girl, it was very liberating for us because when we were doing the Hobgoblin, we weren't even quite sure who he was yet. (laughs) You know, we never got a chance to tell that story. We never got a chance to make a determination. So we knew the elements, we knew the characteristics of the Hobgoblin, but we didn't know completely who he was. So by the time we handled him in Spider-Girl and Roger had reestablished him and Glenn Greenberg had co-written with Roger uh, a couple of issues of, uh, called Goblins at the Gate that ran between a couple of the different Spider-Man titles mm-hmm. where uh, Kingsley came into conflict with Osborne since Osborne had returned. Um, you know, we, we were just picking the, ho- the Hobgoblin up from there, from the end of that, basically. You know, that he retired. He went and was sipping umbrella drinks on a beach somewhere you know got the hell out of dodge uh so we were kind of picking him up from there and uh bringing him into this to the mc2 and again playing him up as a badass is is this this calculating evil person who you know comes into mayday's little mr rogers neighborhood and starts to break things and people uh and it was a lot of fun uh because we actually first reintroduced Daniel. Uh, we uh, we wanted to do a story about uh, fashion, the fashion industry. And uh, we decided that we, we had a guy in the fashion industry. We had Daniel Kingsley. And so we used Daniel for a, an early issue of Spider-Girl. And um, we did like one panel that showed Hobgoblin uh, as Mary Jane was filling May Day in on their history with the Kingsleys and the fans immediately assumed that we were going to do Hobgoblin. We were not intending to do Hobgoblin at that point at all, (laughs) at all. But, you know, Spider-Girl being that book that was always on the bubble and anytime a new editor would come in, they would kind of ask us, so what can we do? What, What can we do to bring some attention to this book and maybe tie it in a little bit more to the 616 main Marvel universe? blah, blah, blah. And at one point, Tom and I were having that kind of a conversation at the behest of our uh, current, uh, our editor at the time. I think it was Molly Laser. It might have been Nicole Wiley. But we we were sitting having that conversation, and I said, Tom, screw it. Why don't we just do Hobgoblin? <laughs> I mean, that always, you know, it's a popular character. It might get a rise out of people. You know, I, I don't know if it worked the way we wanted it to, because I, even at, at the Baltimore Con at one point, I was talking, I think it was at Baltimore, I was talking to some convention with a fan who talked about what a huge fan he was of mine and DeFalco's run and how we handled Hobgoblin and all that kind of stuff. And at the time I said, well, are you reading Spider-Girl right now? And he goes, no, no, no. I said, because we've just introduced, reintroduced Hobgoblin into, into Spider-Girl. It's Kingsley as the Hobgoblin and Spider-Girl. 
And he goes, yeah, but that's not regular continuity, is it? That's not real continuity. And I said, well, real continuity? Uh, I said, listen, you just got done saying how much you enjoyed DeFalco and I handling the Hobgoblin. It's DeFalco and I handling the Hobgoblin. You might enjoy it. Good. You know, please give it a try. He, I, he left with me thinking he wasn't going to try it. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not sure it helped. You know, Spider-Girl continued... Uh, actually, Hobgoblin, the whole uh, Kingsley story, it went into Spider-Girl 100, and and, uh, and then we did the relaunch for Amazing and uh, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, we, we used Hobgoblin a couple of, at least one more time, uh, to great effect, I thought. You know, I mean, he was, you know, he had a, an agenda. He was trying to take over the underworld and become the new kingpin of crime. So uh, we had great fun with the character. I always love the kind uh, Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's, it's a fun character. I mean, Roger gave us a great character to play with. Uh, because, again, you know, he's not crazy. He's incredibly sane and incredibly driven and very powerful. And, uh, you know, he has an agenda. He wants to become more powerful he wants to become the kingpin of crime in new york and uh that's that's something everybody can understand you know it's a very pure motive for for a bad guy you know absolutely the uh the the final issue of the miniseries um, you have, well, first of all, some some really well done Spider-Man Goblin fights. I mean, I mean, you're building up to this, so you need a one hell of a, a, a good climactic fight. Um, you have a great scene of Spider-Man kind of racing up a smokestack, and he kind of he's jumping and flipping up, and you're doing the different you know uh, silhouettes of him moving, which is again one of my favorite things that I wish people did more of, and it's always been such a great thing to see in your work. Um, how how do you like to play with how you show the physicality of Spider-Man? I, again, uh, I'm very comfortable working in the shadow of uh, superior talent. Uh, there is very little, that, if anything, that I've ever really added to the language. Uh, I just try to use the established language as effectively as possible for any given situation. Uh, you know, those multiple image shots were something that uh, Ditko did like better than anybody. And... Uh, you know, uh, Ross Andrew continued them. Ramita would do them occasionally. Uh, Ramita Jr. would do them occasionally. So, you know, it's it's very much a staple of the Spider-Man character and how he moves is very, very well established. So uh, it's it can be intimidating, but, you know, it is part and parcel of the language of the character very specifically. So, you know. We do what we do. And again, Roger also, you know, he does not, he's not the type of a writer that just says, you know, page, uh, uh, you know, 19 through 22, they fight. He's not that guy. You know, that whole sequence where, you know, Pete webs the glider and he's being dragged behind it and he realizes that the vapor coming out of the thing isn't just vapor it's some kind of a gas, you know, and he starts to realize what's happening and everything. That's, you know, all in Roger's plot. So it's very cool stuff. I, I you know, it's, it's, like I said, it's a joy working with, uh, with a writer like Roger because he's, he's very inventive. Uh, you know, he's still relying on you to 
uh, translate his words into visuals, but, you know, he is an incredibly visual writer. He's a very descriptive writer. He's, he's a, uh, the ideal comic book writer because he he comes up with very visual ideas that, that you know, are, are easy to translate into pictures. Mm-hmm. Throughout this series, you have, I mean, and I think you do this most of the time anyway, but specifically in this series, you have um, Spider-Man with the webbed armpits, and again, not everyone does that, and I think at the time, a lot of artists weren't really using that. Was that a very conscious decision to kind of, again, go back to the original look? Anytime I draw Spider-Man, I draw him with the armpits. I, I, the armpit webbing, the only time I think I didn't was the annual we were talking about, because mm. at that time, I don't, I don't think Romita was doing them at the time. And even that, I'm not sure of. I, I, I don't know. Do you have them in front of you right now? Uh, I'm just going to go back and check the annual, see if uh, he yeah, had... check the annual, see if I in, in the flashback, see if I drew him with the underarm webbing. I'm not quite sure I did, uh, but if I didn't, oh no, you did. I did. Okay. You, you know, there's only a few. There's only a few shots where you have the angle where you'd see it, but you definitely yeah. have, have the art. Yeah, because I mean, the only reason I wouldn't have is if I specifically knew that they weren't using it at that time because. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they were basically, nobody ever said, we're not doing the underarm webbing anymore. It just kind of got lost under certain writers or certain artists. And Tom DeFalco, when he was editing the book, brought it back as a story point. You know, he actually had Roger and JR do a scene where, you know, he stood there in the mirror and showed you that, look, you can't see them from this angle, but you can see it from this angle, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, determined editorially that the underarm webbing is back. I mean, Andrew always drew it. He drew it a little differently than, than Ditko did or Ramita did, but he always drew it. And I, I think it's uh, just a unique element of the costume. So anytime I draw Spider-Man uh, in a commission or anything like that, I draw the underarm webbing. It's ridiculous how often people point it out, like, hey, you drew the underarm webbing. It's like, really? Are they still not doing it? Because <laughs> that's one of the coolest, that's one of the coolest things about the costume is the underarm webbing, you know. I think, yeah. I mean, if, I, I were, in, if I were running Marvel, if I were doing Marvel films right now, you know, they, they kind of introduced it as a gliding thing in, uh, in Homecoming. But if I were... If I were uh, Kevin Feige, the underarm webbing would be a part of the costume. It would, you'd be CGIing that stuff in there all the time. <laughs> Just put it in, put it in the budget because we're CGIing in his underarm webbing. I guess the the only time in the annual where you, you he didn't have the uh, underarm webbing, from what I can tell, was just when you had Ben Riley because he didn't have the underarm webbing. Yeah, Riley didn't have it. Yeah, that costume doesn't have it. Yeah. So yeah, okay. Well, you know, I'm consistent if nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, if you if if you ever catch me not showing it, it's either because the angle wouldn't show it or I forgot. Because I I love that element of the suit. What was interesting uh, that was always struck me about, um, and this isn't necessarily your your um, your purview, but um, that struck me about this miniseries is some of the coloring choices were again, very interesting of the time. I'm thinking specifically of the third issue because the uh, the coloring effect on some of the webbing, um, especially on Daniel, yeah. is just so, like, it's vibrant, but it's interesting because it doesn't really connect with how we, we would usually see the webbing. No, I, well, uh, 
I did like the flashback coloring. Like I thought that was very effective because again, it it separated it from the main narrative in a way that made sense visually. Um, so yeah. that that was a you know a part that I thought really worked well for the the, the narrative. And it, again, it's just something about the hue that was used. I thought really did evoke a sense of memory. Like they, that was what memory would look like. <laughs> very cool. No, I love uh, monochromatic stuff. I, I you know there are. Uh, a lot of uh, tricks that work for me uh, in comics as a graphic medium that, uh, you know, I don't like the fact that a lot of the modern coloring tries very hard to be photographic because, you know, human beings don't have black outlines around them. I mean, comics as a medium is a graphic representation of life. Okay? So to over color or over paint with color uh, these, these these graphic representations, you're, you're working at cross purposes, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we I ran into it a lot with the, in, the, in, in uh, our time on Spider-Girl with different colorists from other countries and, and such that they were trying very hard to hold things in color and to uh, get overly painterly with the, the detail on the on the color and, and and it was like we we don't we don't need this <laughs> you know uh, Sal Basema's inking it with a with a black line I mean you know let let the black plate be the reality and add the color I and I would bang heads with the editors all the time with you know to me the most effective way to do a night scene in a comic book is not to try to color it as if the human eye 
is using the cones instead of the rods or whatever the <laughs> whatever the reality is when it's nighttime, you know. And and these uh, these colorists try to color everything like a muddy gray version of color, and they're like the way our eyes really react at nighttime. No, that that becomes a muddy mess, and you can't see what's happening. In a comic book, the most effective night scene I've ever seen handled in a comic book was done in blues. Hmm. Different shades of blue. There's a sequence in an issue with Spider-Man by John Romita where he's uh, he goes into action in, in his civilian clothes, just in his bare feet, to save Flash Thompson from the, the giant Asian chauffeur in vengeance from Vietnam. It's like, <laughs> I don't know issue 107 or something like that uh and, and it's this beautiful sequence where he's fighting in a darkened office and it's all done in shades of blue that you could still see the black art clearly and Ramita is effectively using shadow and effectively using blacks but you know it's done in shades of blue that just pop and and it creates the illusion of nighttime you know, I mean, if you ever watch old TV shows like Bonanza, things from that era in the 60s, most of the night scenes were shot during the day with, with a filter. And quite often, you know, you'll see reflections on people's faces and stuff. And, you know, you can tell yourself it's moon, it's a moonshine, but no, it's sun. <laughs> I mean, that's how they shot stuff because the cameras at that time you know, weren't as effective picking up things at night, you know? I mean, so they weren't really doing a lot of night shoots. They were shooting these scenes during the day and then running it through a filter or shooting it through a filter. And, you know, comics works, in my opinion, best when you're acknowledging the graphic nature of it and you're not afraid of flat color. You're not constantly trying to create three dimensions and you're not constantly trying to over color something to make it look photographic i mean you know in, unless you're alex ross you're not trying to make it photographic you're trying to do a dynamic representation of life you know mm -hmm. so that's my little corner of the universe in my humble opinion <laughs> well, i i mean that's what i came for i came for your opinion well, Ron, I, I mean, I have to thank you so much. You've been more than patient, and it's been, I guess, over two hours that we've recorded now, So, um, which is, I guess, pretty much on course for us when we do your, these deep dives. But, uh, again, I can't tell you how much this means to me. Again, Hobgoblin Lives was, I guess, the first real miniseries I bought um, on my own and with Spider-Man in it that so it always kind of has that uh, strong spa, you know memory for me so I really appreciate be, you know you chatting with it, uh, about it with me as well as about those you know again that annual and those uh, those other issues were even if it was just the thumbnail layouts uh, it definitely well, had did you, did you get did you get all your questions answered that's you know as you were preparing for this interview did you did you get all your questions answered that's that's my main main concern uh, I yeah, I got everything I, I kind of had written down or kind of scribbled around as I was reading through. Yes, I'm sure. Okay. I'm sure something else will strike me, and I will. I will send you an email and say I need to know what 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 is this. <laughs> okay, <laughs> hey, you are more than welcome, my friend. I I really do enjoy our interactions, Adam. I uh, I love what you're doing, 
and uh, you know, it, it's it's been a, it really has been a pleasure over the last few years, and uh, it, it's it, it always is a joy. So thank you. Very I mean, much. I feel like I hold back because I'm like, ah, oh, has it been? Has it you know? Has has enough time passed that I can say, hey, t- hey, Ron, you want to do another one? <laughs> well, you, you you concern yourself more with your audience when it comes to that, because <laughs> I'll tell you something. This guy, I, I will sit here and I will talk comics anytime with anybody so, and uh, it's a pleasure to, to you know to talk to somebody who you know has a, has read the work and appreciated the work and everything so I have no problem with it but uh, yeah when it comes to your audience you might want to put a little bit more distance between, between Ron Friend's interviews I don't know uh, but uh, I, you know it, it's always a joy it really is Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much and uh, you have a good evening and at some point in the future we hope to have you back well, that would be terrific, Adam. I'm all, you know where to get a hold of me. And uh, thank you again for the opportunity. It's been wonderful. You take care, sir.